Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in a time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. Today we turned the tables on Alex and sat down with him to talk about how he was inspired to start the maid, his favorite displays, and some of the challenges in running the museum. This was a pretty interesting lecture. This was really eye-opening. It was good to just chat with Alex about the museum. Yeah, give a little bit of like his insight and just how he was inspired to do it. Lovely stories about ankle bone with the uh, <laughs> Mongolian service center next to the original space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, that was really cool. <laughs> just really inspiring to even working at our the, that second space seeing people's reactions to coming in and seeing all these special displays and all these old consoles that aren't necessarily up and touchable and playable now it's really nice to see people's eyes just sparkle but first before we get into that i think we have a little bit of news to get into apparently scalebound is still a thing so for those of you who don't remember 2014 the xbox 1 had just launched Scalebound was a open-world RPG game developed by Platinum Games of Bayonetta fame of Nier Automata. And it was kind of your average run-of-the-mill JRPG open-world fantasy thing. It had dragons, it had dubstep, it was very cool. Three years later, it was canceled in 2017. And in a recent interview with the heads of the studio, we've learned that there's still pitching for it they're still trying to uh get it to happen i mean i'm all for it i have full faith in platinum games to make it something really really awesome as long as somebody is willing to support it i don't know with all these things maybe it'll go maybe it'll go sony who knows one can only hope (laughs) it's i don't know it looked like fun i'm glad to see that they're still they still believe in this idea they probably still got a lot of work put into it and a lot of skin in the game so it makes sense that hey we've got this thing that we could finish and sell do you want do you want it yeah Uh, but it's Mm -hmm. it's it's still in microsoft's court like microsoft needs to decide what to do with it and hopefully they will i mean they've now that they've picked up a couple more companies i mean hopefully they'll focus on releasing some very fun things Mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes it should be pretty decent it's apparently codenamed rift Uh, We don't know what the final story or uh, content is going to be like, but it's said to have less of a focus on open world and be more of a stealth game. I mean, Assassin's Creed started out really stealthy. I liked the open world Assassin's Creed games. I think Odyssey and Valhalla are both really good, Um, but I'm just a sucker for a good stealth game. So I'm excited to see if like how far they go with it. Yeah, it it should be really exciting to see. I mean, I'm also just... It, I feel like it's bringing Assassin's Creed back to its original things. I mean, you, you're you an assassin. Supposed to be stealthy and sneaky and taking out targets. It's not just like, oh, I'm an assassin. Let me go into this giant crowd and take out 100 people on my way to get my target. <laughs> you know, like an assassin does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Anthony, there's some new Google Stadia news as well, isn't there? Yes, so Google Stadia, um, as some of you might know as Google's cloud gaming service platform, 
there have been reports of it uh, possibly rebranding as Google Stream, which is just taking Google Stadia's cloud gaming technology and using that to create possible partnerships with uh, companies such as Peloton, the sort of uh, exercise bike media company, as well as partnerships with Capcom and Bungie. Mm, what does that, that mean? Would be very cool. uh, some people speculate that it might mean that uh, game demos will be issued through uh, streaming. So if you're looking to demo a game rather than downloading the entire game, you would instead just stream it, which would cost uh, less uh, hardware storage on your end and make it easier for potential buyers for new games. That would be pretty interesting. It's like I'm excited to see that, but I'm also just a, a little bit weary about like streaming of the demos. I mean, it's more just streaming of the games and then just having access to a game that you purchased. But that's for a separate conversation. But I think it is time that we throw it over to Alex. And here's our little chat. Welcome, Alex. Oh, thank you. This is weird. <laughs> a little bit different to be on this side of the interview board, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think I've covered anything really about myself on this podcast. Very intentionally so. Yes, but since you have, uh, you kind of were the, you were the start and the founder of this museum, what inspired you to start this museum and to like start with your collection with uh, sharing it with the public? Um, well, I mean, there's an, the, the easy answer is the, uh, the ROMs that I found at the Laney College flea market. I've, I've told this mm-hmm. story a lot. I don't know if I should tell it again here, but, uh, well, long story short, the Laney College flea market in Oakland, California, I found 56 bare EPROMs with handwritten labels on them. Ostensibly, these were from a studio for owned by or run by these guys, uh, Ed English and Ed Temple who did ports and so forth. And the chips contained uh, ColecoVision games and Atari games, uh, the Atari 2600 game being Cabbage Patch Kids Adventures in the Park. It was 12 (laughs) revisions of the game. uh, And it is, to my mind, one of the only in-progress snapshots we have of a vintage Atari 2600 game being made. Uh, It was also unreleased, of course, on the 2600, although it's basically a port of Athletic Day, I think is the original game. Uh, mm-hmm. which was an MSX game. But that's the easy answer as to why I started the museum is because I found this thing and, and uh, you know, rightly so, everybody's like, oh, a Cabbage Patch Kids game, that's silly. But the revision, the capturing of the 12 revisions of the development of the game is actually ar- archaeologically important in technological terms uh, because nobody saved Atari 2600 games in a revised fashion. We didn't have <clears throat> it. We didn't have CVS. We didn't have Subversion. We didn't have yeah. Search Control. Uh, so that's the short answer. I guess the longer answer would include some of the, you know, I've always worked with nonprofits. I worked with a nonprofit computer recycling center that put Linux on old computers and gave them away to people. And uh, in doing so, was able to become extremely familiar with uh, the leavings of Silicon Valley, as it were. You know, any any archaeologist or biologist or, excuse me, paleontologist will tell you that you often are examining the excrement of the things that you're uh, trying to examine. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I was doing. Learn how to see Silicon Valley 
I deeply examined its excrement and uh, dealt with it in landfills and giant pallet worths and pulling it out of uh, basements in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and and well, I was just that, I was a journalist too. I was a, uh, you know, quote unquote game journalist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and when you say like digging through the excrement of it, I mean, it's literally everybody knows the, the video game crash and how they just dumped piles of Atari games into landfills. So it's literally nobody saved it at the time. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, at that particular time, those games in that landfill are not rare games. I mean, let's be clear no. here. The, it, the games industry did not return to the same size that it was in the 80s before the crash until about 2012, I think, is when it finally mm-hmm. got back to the same size. And so there were millions and millions and millions of copies of Atari games. That's why you can still get an Atari 2600 game for like a dollar. But NES mm-hmm. carts, they're getting to be like $10 a piece, even bad ones, because uh, there's just more of them. Uh, yeah. The stuff that I was dealing with, I mean, it was sort of the same thing, but it was also the computers, right? The stuff they used to make these things. So very specifically, we recycled stuff from Industrial Light and Magic. We had these two giant RAID cabinets that they made, these refrigerator-sized custom hard drive cases. One was called Solo, one was called Yoga. <laughs> oh. uh, we got uh, Tippet Studios stuff all the time. We got their big Onyx's SGIs, another refrigerator-sized things. Probably one of the SGIs that was did the work on uh, Starship Troopers. But like these things come in without data on them, so you and purposely so, and you're not allowed to look at the data if there was there. Uh, but that is what we think that machine was used for. Uh, I remember one time we did Electronic Arts. I went down there, and they just had like a conference room stacked full of crap. And we took it all, and the only thing, the only actually obliquely game-related things in the pile was uh, there was a, a a development N64 cart, which is now in the museum's collection. It was uh, Madden 99. And then there was also a Net Yaro setup, which I don't know. Fantastic. Uh, there's like with so many things now in the collection and with the museum, is there a any particular like favorite item of yours? Would it would it be the the Cabbage oh, Patch definitely. development cards? No, no. Or? Well, that I mean, those ROMs we've never actually done a good <clears throat> exhibit. Of. I would love to do eventually a giant exhibit about the ROMs and their history, but doing installation exhibits and deep stuff like that is the kind of thing that, you know, museums with money do. We are a museum oh, yeah. with no money as usual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, my favorite thing is the Stratus, the, the Stratus Nimbus. So when we did Habitat, we figured initially that we would have to use the original hardware to run the server. The original hardware for those things, refrigerator sized boxes, the Stratus VOS yeah. machines. And VOS is an operating system. I'm sure very few people listening to this have heard of it. I had not. And uh, just to give you an idea of how rare this stuff is, when I contacted the Computer History Museum and said, hey, we're getting Stratus stuff from Stratus, their response was, oh, crap, we forgot about Stratus. Tell them to send us stuff. And let me just be clear, the Computer History Museum has a list on their website that says what they will take. And there's about five things. They don't want yeah. anything. They have everything, right? They don't want your Commodore 64. They don't want your rare Commodore 64, right? Like, they don't want anything. Uh, but they had forgotten Stratus completely. So we got this gentleman named Paul Green, who was, I found him on their FTP site for Stratus uh, and emailed him about the project. He thought it was the coolest thing ever. And he contacted all the Stratus retired people that he could find in the Bay Area. And this other gentleman named John came in to help us. And and Paul flew out to California to go to our our Habitat hackathon. And Mm -hmm. he shipped us a pallet with that Nimbus on it. That's the machine that looks like a, a half a refrigerator. Oh, okay. 
you know which one I'm talking. It's a sort of brown yes. or beige like machine with a little door that yes. shut. And he sent us. Oh my god, he sent us too much stuff. Like he sent us a terminal mm-hmm. and a broken terminal, so we could take the one apart for parts, like keyboards, oodles mm-hmm. of networking cables. Like to this day, we're still sort of going. Uh, we don't need 65 feet of serial cable. I love this thing. It's a great, but we don't need the 65 feet of serial cable. Yeah, it's amazing how like it kind of like it, how it's become obsolete at this point just to see the amount of sheer space required for something of that oh absolutely power. uh but you know the device itself is a beautiful piece of sixty-eight thousand yes uh, hardware with redundant ram boards redundant cpu boards redundant io boards like you could pull out a power supply and swap in another one and it won't come off because there's two uh it's that's these things were designed to survive nuclear war because that's what they, they initially were running banks <laughs> in nuclear weapon silos uh and you know you were supposed to lose half of them Mm-hmm. So that's definitely my favorite thing in the museum's uh, collection because it was so much fun to get it. Paul Green and Stratus were so generous in sending it to us completely, you know, like that thing was there in like three days in a shipping truck where a guy had to like back a semi up and, and pallet jacket into, you know, this was not UPS, right? Like at mm-hmm. that time, we couldn't get the pallet into the space because we were on the second floor. So we had to like put the pallet in the elevator to get it on the second floor, stop it up and like take it apart in the hallway and bring it in because the doorway wasn't big enough to get pallet. Just having to manage that, uh, Manage the space of everything was a bit of a hassle. Well, I mean, at, uh, the, at, at the second floor of that old space, it was tough. You know, there was no room. But th- yeah, that space also, boy, talk about being immersed in a place where we could engage with communities and help. I mean, that's the initial space of the museum on the second floor between Jefferson and Martin Luther King on 15, <laughs> 16th Street in downtown Oakland. It was right next to SRO Residence Hotels. It was on that floor with us were anger management classes, family management classes, like classes that were stipulated by the courts. If you were in court for domestic violence, like these people were right next door mm-hmm. uh, and the, the Mongolian cultural center was there. There were all sorts of nonprofits. So people who were in this building would just drift in. Right. Like when my favorite was like the parenting classes, the court mandated parenting classes, people would show up with their kids and leave the kids in the hall. This is like this little tiny room with chairs and they all just sit around and have a little group talk. And the kids are sitting in the hall, bored out of their minds. And I'd always just stick my head out and be like, hey guys, you want to play some video games? Yeah. <laughs> and that was like, you know, it was like, of course. And, uh, and the Mongolian Cultural Center, that was the best. They were right next to us. They played more games than we did. They played ankle bone chucking. And I'm probably saying, whoa, it was like a little, they had a little slingshot and they would fire it at like a mahjong tile or a domino set up inside of a box across the room. So it was a very small target and like the little slingshots. One guy used a freaking crossbow. I guess you could use whatever you wanted, uh, but it was like bowling, right? They're like trying to knock yeah. it down. And so we'd be sitting in there having class and next door, there's a room half filled with Buddhist monks, half filled with guys in traditional Mongolian garb going, whoa. <laughs> and then once a year the, the rich folks from berkeley would come over and talk to a teacher that you know i'm sure that's how they made their money the rich folks in berkeley coming down to speak to a buddhist master like once a year the rest of the year it was uh lunar new year's festivals for all the Mon- local mongolian folks and their kids uh, it was chess classes and piano classes for those kids it was ankle bone chucking uh ankle bone chucking and ankle bone chucking oh my god they had tournaments they would it was it was so much fun <laughs> They always wanted to play Mortal Kombat and wrestling games because I don't know if you know this. Mongolia has like its own form of wrestling. Ooh, uh, you'll see it now that you know that. Look in a lot of the fighting games, you'll see. Oh, here's the Mongolian wrestler guy. It's usually a dude with no shirt and like long pants. 
Oh, uh, okay. So they always wanted to play wrestling games. And they always wanted to play Mortal Kombat 2. This one dude wanted to play Mortal Kombat 2 with his six-year-old daughter. She came in. She said, I want to play Mortal Kombat. I said, you can't play that. I need your dad's permission. She went and got her dad. Her dad's like, oh, I want to play Mortal Kombat. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess they, they had a Mortal Kombat 2 machine when he was growing up, wherever he was growing up. Maybe it was Magawa. Maybe it was here. But like, he loved did you ever get to? Did you ever get a chance to do any uh, ankle bone chucking with them? Did you swap no, sides and hop no. over there? <laughs> no, um, we found them an online version though. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, they were not interested. I mean, they were like, "Oh, that's oh. cool." <laughs> Went right back to you know. Yeah, I can get the real slingshot out. We'll do the real game. <laughs> so we've like seen you run the museum for how many years now? Was that ten? Ten years. What are some of the challenges that uh, you come across? Uh, money. Lack of money. Always lack mm -hmm. of money. I mean, every problem we have ever had could be solved with money, and we've never had it. Mm -hmm. We always, as I say, you know, we use furniture we find on the streets. We use volunteers. We uh, Everybody just gives us their equipment. Uh, running a museum on a shoestring budget is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, just mm -hmm. as a comparison, the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, is raising something like is raising numerous millions of dollars to build an additional 90,000 square feet, right? Yeah. That's amazing. And more power to them. And I just talked to JP Dyson. He's on the previous episode, I would assume, uh, mm -hmm. about this. And, you know, more power to him. It's terrific. But, you know, we're I would kill for 9,000 square feet. I'd kill for a single yeah. million. We, you would not believe what we could do with that. I mean, that's the single issue. And we have some very generous folks out there who have given us money. And, and we're always extremely appreciative. We could not be here without like our Patreon donors or the people who just, you know, randomly give us money all the time or, or have their companies do matching donations. Those help tremendously. I mean, every dollar that somebody gives us goes 10 times farther for this organization than it would to a similar museum. Uh, or not similar museum. Like if you give nothing against the SF MoMA, but if you give them $10, yeah. You know, you're buying them. Maybe, maybe you're buying them toilet paper. You give us ten dollars, we're gonna like turn that into intelligence and inject it into the brain of a child. Yes, you know what I mean. You gotta push uh, that forward to the next generation. Exactly, and and that kid's gonna go on to make a game that's gonna be like better than Zelda, and you'll all be very thankful. And it only costs ten dollars, but you know, mm -hmm. that's <laughs> uh, the other challenges are always just uh, volunteers finding wonderful volunteers like yourselves. Uh, you guys, you guys are totally rare finds and are wonderful because you're able to like do this podcast and do it well and not go, Hey, could you pay us? Or, <laughs> or you know, yeah. like you're into the fringe benefits, I guess, uh, <laughs> which are very fringe, I'm sure. But without <laughs> folks like you guys, this museum would certainly not be here. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm just the guy that like irritates people until they do stuff, right? It's the people <laughs> who actually do this stuff and are volunteers and finding New volunteers is always challenging, but it's always the most rewarding part because you get to meet some amazing people. We've had some incredible folks come through over the years. When I was in New Orleans, I went to see Russell Spitzer, who was one of our teachers, who's a great guy. You know, uh, these people are now friends. I, I can't even tell you how like just like this core group of Sean and Wolf and Shannon and me, and we mm -hmm. just like we're like going out for beers every Friday night. And you guys are more than welcome to join us. We always invite everybody, but it seems to just be the four of us. <laughs> Still going to Van Cleef's. Oh, yeah, you know, Van Cleef's. But uh, no, that's the most rewarding but challenging part. Not the most challenging part, but like finding good volunteers. But that has such a hockey stick benefit, right? Like a good, a wonderful person will advance this museum in, in, in incredible ways. Uh, and 
all I've tried to do while I've been here is to enable people to do that. Well, I, I, I would say that you have definitely enabled us to do great work. And your, your drive for this also is another reason why we're still involved and it's still like inspiring to do it too. It's, it, it's a give and take too. Well, as I always tell Shem, I say, you know, spite is an incredible motivator. <laughs> Anytime somebody tells you you can't do it or it can be done or you're doing it wrong, you just pack that in a little box. It's like it's like coal you throw in the fire. I'll mm -hmm. show you. <laughs> I, always, I, always say that, like, I won't say the name, but the first guy I brought on board to be an IT manager for the museum uh, within two weeks sent a screaming, angry letter to me and quitting, telling me that it wouldn't work. I was doing it wrong. I'm still mm -hmm. running this thing on him telling me that, so I appreciate him doing it. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be with you forever. Yeah, I, I know that. I don't know if that's right to run something this way, but like you know, like proving people wrong is a good motivator. I was though. When we started out, people said you can't do playable, you cannot do playable, you can't let people touch this stuff, right? And everybody like the only places you could put your hands on these things was in like a store where the guy's trying to sell you something, and maybe he has an extra Genesis and he set it out with a game or two, or maybe they've got mm -hmm. one of each system, and that's you know more power to those stores, but that's just. Oh, consumerism. There's other things in the world, America. Yeah. Just, just the experience of, I mean, the first time I walked in there and actually got my hands on this, like some of the older systems, I mean, the Vectrex alone, actually seeing one working was crazy to see up and running for the first time. That was, I mean. You know, that Vectrex wants to be played because it has tried to die a number of times. And every time it dies, we put it on the shelf and pull it back out a couple months later and see, well, let's see what's wrong with it. it turns right back on. It's like, yep. I just needed a break. Put me back out with the people. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very fortunate in our size too, because as I've said in the in the Paul Galloway <laughs> interview, the the level of controller destruction at the New York moment is catastrophic, right? But mm -hmm. we're we're small enough that like it's not things aren't getting destroyed on a daily basis. Yeah, and it's like and especially having the with the things that we do have, having the extra storeroom, having like having the space to have replacement parts and everything else is one of the big things that we're currently looking for as the museum. And so we can, if anything does break down, we can have another one to showcase and have another that's, thing to show out. That's sort of what I, I tell people about the storage museum. When they look at it, and they're like, this is just a bunch of junk. I'm like, uh, at the time, I don't know, five years ago, I read Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. I think it's a very good metaphor. It's like they got two years to get as much crap into orbit as possible because the Earth's about to die. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm sort of thinking of this. Like, we got to pack as much of this crap in here because they're not making any more of it, right? And in like 50 years, we're going to be like, oh my God, where do we get a CRT? Our, our you know, our PVM, finally, our nice PVM monitor finally died. Where do we get a replacement? Nobody makes these things anymore. Nobody ever is going to make these things ever again. What do we do, right? Yeah. That's... That's been my philosophy with the museum. There's a lot of other museums that are collecting spectacular, unique things, people's papers, people's you know documents, original copies, prototypes. That's great. Those those museums like the Strong are built for that. They should take those things and they should have those things, not us. But the rest of this crap is just, you know, they don't want it. So we'll take it. You know, they, they only needed so many Nintendos. But we Yes. I'm not I'm not willing to say no to a Nintendo yet. And I've never said no to a NES yet. I don't no. think we ever will. <laughs> and I, I think that's a fair I think that's a fair point to make I don't think we we have we're always open to any of the classic consoles is there a uh, well, the, the thing is we're the only organization you can give it to and be fairly certain somebody's going to use it at some point you know absolutely like 
uh, that's what a lot of people, when they bring us this stuff, they say, I just want to make sure somebody uses it or, you know, put it in the hands of some kids. And we are the organization that will do that. Maybe it'll be 50 years for that nest, but it yeah. will eventually get to somebody's hands. Yeah. And it's like, and if it's not that, if it's not their specific nest, it's an, it's another nest that we will make sure gets played. Well, we're, not going, and... we're not going through them at the rate yet, but I'm telling you someday no. it will eventually make its way back out because they're, they're not making any more of these things, right? No. They're, and, and they're not going to. And misters are cool. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Is there any, is there any particularly unique rare thing that you're also proud of to have in the collection that's like something maybe not a lot of other places have aside from the initial uh that well, refrigerator the, computer the <laughs> the vos i mean there, yeah, there's VR. the the transfer document for habitat um that was amazing that, but that again that's because of habitat which is a spectacular document uh, which details like here Fujitsu, this is Habitat. We are Lucasfilm. We're going to document the entire thing. And this is the binder explaining the thing you've bought. Uh, the, I, there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff. Any uh, um, Nintendo World not, Championship cards? No, we don't have that. <laughs> we have like Earthbound. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to get cart-wise, we got Earthbound. We've got... Uh, air cars for Atari Jaguar. We've got uh, there's 3DO game. Oh, we have uh, Lucian's Quest for a tar- for a 3DO, which I just found recently at a yard sale in Silicon Valley at some dude's house. Like, really? I, yeah. No. I, it's actually I, I said this to my wife this weekend. It's like I don't. I'm not even looking for video game stuff anymore. I've sort of moved on from that point in my life where I used to just obsessively try to find that stuff. But it it finds me. I'm not mm-hmm. trying. Like we're just like, let's go yard sailing. And we drove up, and this guy has a 3DO, a custom built wooden joystick, arcade stick for playing Street Fighter 2 on the 3DO, and like 20 games, all of them rare, including Zadnost in the original box, uh, which is one of my favorites, and mm-hmm. Lucian's Quest, which is the only RPG. It's a JRPG for 3DO. It's very unique and actually a good game. I'm like, why do you have all this? He's like, I work for 3DO. I made that box. I used to play uh, Street Fighter with Trip on it. And so I immediately popped out my camera. I took a picture and I texted Trip. I'm like, Trip, look, I found the controller because Trip's been giving us stuff. Oh, that's, that's, you know what? When we reopen, there's a box of videotapes over there that's going to go into the museum's collection. And that's probably one of the neat, unique things. Uh, Trip Hawkins has been sending us stuff. He's been cleaning out his house and he's Ooh. working on a book. And I've been trying to get him on the on the podcast is he won't come on until the book's ready so he can promote it, right? But mm-hmm. he sent us those VHS tapes of 3DO commercials, and those are wow. on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Oh. And the guy who's in the commercials, the, you, guys, you guys, go watch these commercials. There's a mm-hmm. dude in the commercials who's like, you know, really 90s extreme. He contacted us, and he wants to come on the podcast, and I want to let you guys... Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I think we can definitely make that happen. Well, I also think that it's uh, just about time for us to wrap up this interview. But Alex, thank you very much for sitting on this side and talking with us and answering questions for this little piece of interview and give to the rest of the world. Thanks for keeping it going, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Alex, once again, for letting us turn the tables on you, sit down and have you be on the other side of the, the question seat. So that hopefully we'll have you on again soon in the future to talk about a lot of other things. So before we wrap up this episode, uh, what have y'all been playing? Still been playing Arceus? 
Yes, still playing Arceus. Uh, I'm about 40 hours in. Uh, so a majority of my Pokemon are around level 40 now. Ooh. And they're getting big, I gotta say. Those Pokemon will grow. It, mm -hmm. Like, actually, they I like how you can totally see the different sizes. That's one thing that was really cool, because, like, in the old games, you just had, like, a little sprite picture, and it just said, it's like, oh, this one's, like, three feet tall instead of two feet tall, and this one weighs this much, but no discernible difference. It's cool that you can actually see using, <laughs> different size Pokemon. Using your imagination to... <laughs> one interesting, though, uh, from a sound aspect... Um, the sounds for the different Pokemons, they sort of use like a, I guess, like a sort of 16-bit um, rendered sound um, from the sort of Game Boy. It's fun. I think it's a cute addition. Well, awesome. And have you been playing anything special, Miles? Oh, all my time's been sucked into uh, building a spaceship in Space Engineers. Nice. How's it coming along? It's looking pretty good. I'm very proud of it. Uh, usually, I just sort of do the exterior and leave it at that, uh, hmm. which means that it looks cool from the outside, but is not actually functional, hmm. or okay. uh, you know, just has big empty spaces inside that are full of pipes and nothing else. Yeah. Um, this one, I sort of started from the engine room and built out from there in both directions, and then did the outside, and I've I think managed to make something that looks pretty cool both when you're walking around inside it and from the outside so i'm pretty happy with that the i've probably talked about this already um but the 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 new dlc that dropped the update for uh the warfare expansion in the game uh mm -hmm. has added a but a whole bunch of new features and blocks and decorative stuff and practical stuff that like actually makes uh the the combat systems in the game work a lot better and so I'm just I'm making warships now and looking for an opportunity to smash them into each other and shoot at them and have nice. a lot of fun seeing all the new systems interact. That's that seems exciting. That seems I don't know. I want to I want to watch it. I want to watch you crash some ships and shoot some homing missiles. Yeah, record some clips of that. Yeah, exactly. Share some with us. Enlighten us, smiles. <laughs> Alrighty, but I think that's just about all the time that we have for this episode of the Maidcast. We want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the Maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Rubayat and David Scott. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Miles. I'm Anthony. And I'm Red. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.